Well, I am grateful for another opportunity to stand before you and to minister God's Word. And I would encourage you, if you would, to take your Bibles and turn with me to the 26th chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. I was telling Angela, uh, who's at home with a headache, but I was telling her uh, that I'm... Still suffering from the vestiges of a summer cold, and I was telling her, I hope I don't make too too big a mess of myself in the pulpit tonight. So, I would be grateful if you'd bear with me. Now, in this passage in Matthew chapter twenty-six, uh, verses thirty-six through forty-six. Just a word about the original Greek of this passage, and you also find this. Um, in the parallel passage in the Gospel of Mark, I believe it's chapter 14, I think it's verses 32 through 42 there. But there is in the original language a number of historical presents, of present tense verbs, and we refer to them as historical presents, and they're translated as a, as a past tense verb, but they're what we call a historical present. And Grammatically speaking, uh, I think the Holy Spirit did that to signify with unusual intensity that God wants us to exercise all of our faculties of sanctified imagination as we seek to inject ourselves back into that scene in the Garden of Gethsemane that is here described by the, the evangelist Mark under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so with those few words, let's look at Matthew chapter 26, beginning with verse 36, reading through to verse 46. Hear the word of the true and living God. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch him pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father... If this cannot pass, unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep, take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. 
All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our Lord shall stand forever. Let's pray. O Holy Father, we read in your word that you know our frame and that you remember we are dust. And you know, O Lord, that we can bear so little of any concentrated attention to the great and profound mysteries surrounding the sufferings and the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot begin to fathom what it meant for him to stagger and to fall upon the ground here in this garden like a drunken man, not drunken with excessive intake of wine, but filled with a sense of knowing that he must tread the winepress of your wrath all alone, that he must expose himself to the fiery indignation and, as it were, be consumed in the furnace of your fury. Lord, take away the dullness of our hearts this evening, the blindness from our eyes, indeed the deafness of our ears, that we may both receive and respond as we ought to that which you have written here concerning your own beloved Son. And though, Lord, as this poor creature stands before a passage like this one, we cry out of a sense of need who is sufficient for these things. And we're reminded in your word that our sufficiency is of God and that we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Come then, blessed Holy Spirit, shine upon the pages of this God's word and open our hearts to hear it as we ought. We ask for the sake of the one who loved us and gave himself for us, even Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. I want to draw your attention this evening, reverently and tenderly I trust, to this passage which recounts for us in a very touching way this scene in the Garden of Gethsemane, where we find our Lord struggling in prayer to embrace the will of His Heavenly Father. The very name Gethsemane itself means oil press, and here where the olives were pressed, likewise we find that the Son of God is also pressed, pressed so sorely and so traumatically and to such an extent that He is almost overwhelmed with a prospect that looms large before him. Indeed, so much so that Luke, in his own account of this scene, is moved to underscore the psychosomatic expression of the distress of our Lord in terms of abnormal physical manifestations. As he wrote, "...and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly." Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And here in this recorded incident of our Lord's struggle in Gethsemane, the Holy Spirit has given us, I think, a fuller revelation of the inner travail of our Lord as he contemplates what it will mean for him who knew no sin to become sin on behalf of his people. 
And so in a very real sense, before the cross was planted in Golgotha, this dark but well-defined shadow of the cross is cast backwards into the Garden of Gethsemane. And that is why many commentators, such as Hugh Morton, have referred to this passage as the shadow of Calvary. For in this shadow of our Lord's deep distress, we're actually given insights into the mystery of the cross, which are not disclosed in the actual gospel accounts of the cross itself. Hugh Martin has expressed it this way. He said, perhaps the most impressive proof that can be given of the inconceivable terrors of Christ's sufferings considered as a whole and as constituting the one undivided ransom for sin results from the fact that the darkness of Gethsemane must be regarded as but the shadow of Calvary. The sorrows of the garden arose from the prospect and the foresight of the sorrows of the cross. And so there is something of a mystery that enshrouds Gethsemane. And it is a mystery that we cannot hear this evening penetrate very far into it, but we can at least make a beginning and seek to discover therein something of the pattern for us that our Lord has by his own example given us here to follow. First of all, then, I want you to notice with me as we consider this passage that we find our Lord Jesus Christ, as I've intimated, very much under the shadow of the cross. The specter of the cross looms large before our Lord on this occasion. And we as Christians, we make a great deal of the cross in our churches, in our hymns, in our prayers, in our attention to the scriptures. I think that For example, hymn number 255, I was looking at it before the service tonight in our hymnal. We sing, O Jesus, we adore thee upon the cross, our King. We bow our hearts before thee. Thy gracious name we sing. That name hath brought salvation. That name hath been our stay, our peace, our consolation, when life shall fade away. For Jesus, however... The shadow of the cross was very different from what it is for you and for me. And in this scene, his heart is now overcast of what it was, what was going to take place in him and through him in just a few short hours. Then in the second place, I want you to notice with me from this passage that the Lord Jesus Christ is almost overcome with a sense of great sorrow. His own words, they underscore this reality. My soul, he says, is exceedingly sorrowful, perilupus, even to death. Stay here and watch with me, he says to his disciples. And the meaning of the Greek word there, it denotes an affliction of grief or sorrow beyond measure. In his his own gospel account, Mark tells us that on this very evening, after having instituted and celebrated the Lord's Supper with the Passover, the Lord Jesus came with his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane. 
and that he took Peter, James, and John with him to another place a bit further from the rest. And I think that's very interesting that the Lord chooses those inner three with him. And it says that he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And so our Lord is brought here, I would emphasize, to the place where he is almost overcome with the stress and the sorrow of the prospect before us. In one sense, it strikes us, does it not, to see our Lord Jesus in a condition like this. Remember, after all, who this is. This is God manifested in the flesh. This is the very one who called worlds into existence. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. He is the creator and the master of the universe. And even at this point in his experience, he had only to speak the word, and more than 12 legions of angels would have immediately flown to his bidding and to his assistance. All power was his to command. And yet here he is, reduced to an emotion of fear and dread and deep distress of soul. In other words, we find here a Christ who is troubled, a Christ who is experiencing the depths of human sorrow. He's not simply presented to us in this passage as a majestic and a controlled Christ. But he stands before us in all the glory of his human vulnerability and weakness. We see the human side of our Lord in this passage as one who is exposed to the deepest kind of mental, psychological distress and trouble. In other words... The Christ we see before us here is not only the Lord of glory, not only as God or the kind of God who is unmoved by the pain of human grief and sorrow. He's not simply presented here as that majestic and controlled Christ, but who is so consumed with sorrow that he is brought to the point of almost being overwhelmed. We have a word for that. In our own parlance today, do we not? He was on the verge of a psychological and mental meltdown. That's our Lord presented to us in this scene. His human side coming through. He knows these emotions, not only on the bright side of joy and contentment and fulfillment, but he knows them on the dark side as well. In other words, he is a Christ who wept. He is a Christ who is capable of the most painful human emotions and the Christ who was never ashamed to show or express those emotions. He already knows that his life has been betrayed by one of his own disciples for a mere 30 pieces of silver. He sees before him the trials, the humiliation, the shame, and then the cross itself. It is yet another picture of Christ which convinces us that when the Son of God became man, he did in reality take to himself our nature physically, psychologically, 
emotionally, that he tabernacled among us, that he has come into our experience, that he has entered into the valley of our humiliation, that he has come into our pain, into our poverty and misery and sorrow, and he has come at last into our bereavement and into the agony of death itself. And that's what makes a passage like this so wonderful, so glorious. Christ in my nature, Christ passing through my valley, my suffering, my valley of the shadow of death. But even more wonderful and glorious than that is the fact that in my valley... He feels and reacts exactly like I feel and react in such a circumstance. He reacts with distress, with trouble, and with sorrow. By the language of his own confession here, he reacts with a sorrow like we react when sorrow consumes us. My soul, he says, is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch With me. He has, you see, no built in immunity to distress and sorrow and pain, no inherent anesthesia to ease or suppress the heartache. In the fourth century of the church, when there was all this debate between the Arians and the Orthodox about whether or not Christ was God or where he was God or whether he was merely a creature, even the Orthodox would describe. Christ almost as though he were in creation wearing some kind of a space suit, like he was immune from what was going on around him. But the Christ presented to us here has no such built-in immunity. It seems so often, I think, that pressure is placed upon God's people sometimes, not always, but sometimes, to be unemotional, to be stoic, to be, always be in control of their affections and their relationships, their reactions and feelings. And yet here we're presented with the marvelous reality of an almost broken Christ, of an almost overwhelmed Christ. We see a Christ passing through, passing through his own personal turmoil. And in many ways, is the pattern for our humanity and the pattern for our own emotional lives. The example for us not to act as though we're unaffected by our own struggles and difficulties and dark providences. And therefore we learn herein, in this account, that it is not subhuman to be troubled. That it's not always a breakdown in courage to be distressed. That it's not sinful for us to find ourselves at times with heaviness of heart. Because here is the man Christ Jesus, God's perfect man, God's model man. Here is God's definition of a true man. This is God's statement of what it means to be a true human being, not some unmoved stoic or macho man, if you please. For here is Christ on the brink of losing it, of being overwhelmed in his sorrow and deep distress. I think it's only Luke's account tells us that even as he was praying, God was pleased to send an angel to strengthen our Lord. 
Moreover, I learn from this passage as I face its implications that God truly does understand my own sense of trouble and distress because in Christ, God has come into my valley of the shadow of death. In Christ, God has been distressed and troubled and brought to the point of collapse. And I know that God in Christ from His throne in heaven as He sits there and considers and observes human pain and struggle that He too in Christ can be touched with a feeling of our infirmities and sympathize with our weaknesses. What would be your response if tomorrow you had a doctor's appointment and after the physician had examined you and perhaps having in hand the results, the conclusions of a certain number of tests he had made and had completed everything that needed to be done in order to make a competent and careful diagnosis. And he were to say to you, you have a very serious illness, one from which you cannot and will not recover. You had better set your house in order. Because your days are not long for this world. How would you feel? Well, you might for your family's sake and for the sake of your testimony as a Christian, put on the best face possible in spite of what seems to be a very unacceptable matter. But nonetheless, inside you might be seething and not a little fearful and apprehensive Because, after all, it is not easy to die, even for a believer who has lived a long and full and fruitful life and who has known the Lord in a very intimate and close way. The river of death can be a very difficult channel to ford. It can be difficult to face death and die. And the reason for that is because death is not natural to us. The Lord didn't create us to die, but to live. And death is due to the abnormality of sin that has entered into God's creation. And what sin has done, that death has become a part of our experience. Now the Lord can remove the fear of death from His people. Thank God for that. And He does it time and time again. But can you imagine how you would feel if you were to be confronted suddenly with the immediate prospect of death? Jesus here finds himself facing that prospect. And he's looking over the brink of life and into the pit of death itself and across the vastness of eternity as well, as the Son of God to be sure, but also as the God-man, the man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief, because he bore our grief and carried our sorrows. Even in this very hour, we find him struggling with the will of God. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. But there is here in this in the third place, something more in the dread of death and the prospect of suffering. 
This hour in Gethsemane is, in a real sense, for our Lord Jesus Christ, a most critical period in the days of his flesh. It is a time when he stands face to face, perhaps, as he'd never done before, with the full implications of what his father's will and purpose meant for him. Here and now in Gethsemane, a place so familiar to him as a place of retreat and solace. And as it, and it, as it is today, it was a garden after all. A place that had long become a quiet spot, according to Luke 22 and verse 39, to which he could retreat and withdraw with his disciples and open his heart to his father. And yet here he is now confronted with all that it means as his being chosen by the father to be the lamb of God to bear away the sin of the world. He had invited the inner circle of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, who he had singled out from among the others on other occasions to accompany him further into the confines of the garden. He loved all of his disciples, to be sure, but especially these three. John, of course, was the one who was identified as the disciple whom Jesus loved. But Peter, too, had confessed him to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. And James belonged to the inner group as well. He wanted them. He needed them. Their affirmation, their support, their encouragement, their prayerful intercession in just this hour of his tremendous necessity. These men, you'll recall, he had taken up with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. And there they were privileged to behold shining through the veil of the, of the Son of God's flesh, the splendor of God himself. They had gone with him into that little bedroom in the ill-filled house of Jairus, one of the religious rulers of the synagogue, when his daughter lay not dying, but dead. And they had seen and heard what happened on that occasion when the Lord Jesus looked at her and said, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And they begin to see the eyes of that little girl flutter and her lungs begin to heave with breath once more. And they saw life come back into the dead body of that little girl in obedience to the command of our Lord Jesus Christ. These he had told to watch and pray, but instead they had fallen fast asleep. Now I suppose that their guilt in this respect is somewhat mitigated by what Luke tells us in his own account due to their sorrow. And you know, surely some of us know this firsthand, how easy it is in a stressful situation to seek and to take refuge in sleep. For some folk, sleep is an easy escape from the apparent unacceptable realities of life. And apparently these disciples, Peter, James, and John, though they may also have been very Weary, they had had difficult taking in, difficulty taking in everything Jesus had told them this very evening before his crucifixion. 
But nonetheless, they had fallen fast asleep because anything more was simply too much for them. Yet our Lord needed them, and they were not there. But as we've noted already and we're told as well that our Lord Jesus in the garden was subjected to a fearful anguish of spirit. In Luke's account of this occasion to which I've already alluded, so much was his body pressed with stress at the awful dread and apprehension that he felt lay before him that the subcutaneous capillaries burst And he began to sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. To be sure, the ultimate desolation of that bitter cup had not yet come upon him. But the prospect of what that would mean was clearly there already. And in this critical hour, Jesus is coming to terms with the will of his heavenly Father. This scene of our Lord in Gethsemane, if it teaches us anything, then surely it teaches us that if our Lord Jesus Christ, if he could not bear the load of his Father's will, if he felt that he couldn't climb that mountain as it were before him, if he couldn't swallow the 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 contents of that bitter cup of what surely was the will of God for him, except as the writer Hebrews Hebrews tells us, with vehement cries and tears, which he offered up to God, then how in God's name can we, you and I, hope to stumble through the dark corridors of life day by day and act as if to say to God, you know, Lord, I can handle it all on my own, doing your will, and never come before God in the sense of crushing dependence together with an understanding of our frailty and weakness because the Lord Jesus is teaching us here in the clearest way possible that if prayer was utterly essential for him to face the will of God, then so much the more for you and for me. And then this in the fourth place. Here in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus struggles as intensely and as painfully as only he could with that will of his Father. You'll notice what our Lord says in verses 39 and 42 of Matthew 26. O Father, he prayed, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then again, O my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me, unless I drink it, your will be done. Now, I'm sure that many of us here this evening know from our own experience how hard it is sometimes to accept the will of God, to accept a dark providence. Perhaps you kept vigil at the bedside of a sick child. And you watched that little body weaken and languish. And finally, you've 
You've witnessed death wrench that loved one from your tender care and keeping. You've had to watch, perhaps, as one who is dearer to you than life itself has been taken from you, and you're left empty and aching and bereft of that loved one. You've been beset by problems and difficulties and frustrations and sets of circumstances circumstances that perhaps left you shaking your head and perhaps your fist, wondering how in the world could God ever let something like this happen to you. Life can be full of unacceptable realities, and it is not easy even for those whose fundamental confession is that God does, as a matter of fact, work all things together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. And that even for those who can save with our Lord Jesus Christ and mean it, not my will, but yours be done. Here is the Lord, and I cannot begin to understand this, dear people. Here is the Lord, the Lord Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, become one of us, the man who was God in the flesh and who could do anything he wanted to do. And yet here it's almost as if he's saying, Father, this assignment may be too much for me. The cup you're giving me to drink, may it be taken from me. In the second chapter of Paul's epistle to the Philippians, there's this marvelous expression which Bible students have long discussed and debated. And there in that marvelous passage, Paul says, beginning in verse 5, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made of himself no reputation, made himself nothing, literally emptied himself. What in the world does that mean? Well, surely for one thing, it means that he took to himself, as Paul goes on to tell us in the very passage, the form of a servant. But may it also mean that the Lord of all is reduced in a state of humiliation for us, for you and for me, to this state of awful agony and bloody sweat to cry out to his Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But then fifth and finally, I want you to notice as well that there is this steady progression in this sequence or this chain of prayers uttered by our Lord Jesus. And I think it's important for us to understand this. These prayers, as Matthew gives them to us, are not identical The principle or the main clause in the first prayer is very different from the principle or the main clause of the second prayer. Jesus prays first, O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The important clause there to notice is, let this cup pass from me. But when he prays again, he prays in this manner. Oh, my Father, if this cup 
cannot pass away from me unless I drink it. Your will be done. But when he prays again, he prays in this matter, Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. That's important. And then the third petition as noted by Matthew is that he prayed the third time saying the same words. And then he goes and he addresses his disciples. And notice what's happening. He says to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And from this point onward, the Lord Jesus moves forward with a holy resolution and a majestic calmness to go to the cross in his commitment to the will of God. You see, there is this marvelous progression in his petitions, and something transpired after that last mighty wrestling with his father in prayer, from which he emerges no longer distracted with the turmoil of his soul. But he moves forward with the majestic calmness of a king. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And he proceeds henceforth to the cross with this majestic calmness in all of his actions and in all of his words that remains unbroken until that cry of dereliction is wrung from his lips upon the cross when the redemption of his people is fully accomplished and he has drained to the dregs the cup of God's wrath against sins. For all intents and purposes, it's true that Gethsemane and the bloody sweat and the anguish, the pain, the distress of spirit, the dread and the struggle that Jesus underwent in this hour, and his consciousness therein of what lay ahead of him, all of these things together point us first and foremost to the fact that he has done everything that needed to be done in order to rescue you and me from our sins and to redeem us unto God. You see here that cup from which our Lord dreads the drink was a cup filled to the full with God's holy, righteous wrath and indignation against sinners. And he drank that cup that I might stand here today as a Christian knowing that my own guilty conscience that accused me day and night has been wiped clean, that the slate has been purged utterly of everything that could be registered against me. And my heart and soul has been set free for the sake of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And my friend, if you're here tonight as a stranger to Christ, the same can be true for you if you only trust him. If you only turn from your sins and turn unto the Lord Jesus Christ. And for us Christians, when we behold the mystery of Gethsemane, when the Son of God struggled with the will of God, we need to keep in mind 
that not only do we have the record of His example to lighten our way and to guide us through every trial we encounter this side of the world to come, whether it be sorrow or pain or heartache or sickness or even the grim reality of death itself, we have something more. We have you and I. But these poor disciples discovered and experienced for themselves, namely the light and the pledge and the promise of his own unending, abiding presence to pick us up along the way when we fall, to comfort and console us, indeed to steady our steps in his when we falter and to lead us by the hand until we reach our home. For he has sealed this promise to us in his own blood, saying, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Let's pray.